Good morning, South Africans. As we wake up on this cold morning after our election day yesterday, my name is Francis Carrere, and you're on the Jesuit Institute R at Radio Veritas. To begin this morning, we're going to be talking to Mike Potier from the um, Catholic Parliamentary Liaison Office in Cape Town. And of course, this is the office that we Catholics turn to whenever we want some kind of political commentary or insight, because their work is dedicated with Parliament as they think through and ponder what's going on in the country and how they can help to really bring Catholic social teaching to life in the life of our democracy. Then a little bit later, we're going to talk a bit about one of the key Ignatian concepts that I thought was quite appropriate to election fever, if you like. The notion of the margis, which is a Latin tag really meaning the more. And so we're going to explore a little bit the idea of searching for the more, living more fully the life that Jesus asks of us and how we do that as Christians, how we are called to follow Christ more in the world. I know this is a theme I talk about a lot in this hour, but really this is fundamental to what it is to being a Christian, to following Christ. And this idea of Magus that St. Ignatius explores in his spiritual exercises is one that I think helps us to engage more profoundly with a sense of what it is that we are called to do and how we are called to live in the world. So we're going to start off this morning listening to a little bit of music and then we'll be talking to Mike Potier in a few minutes. Eternal life to me. 
So we were just listening to um, John Foley's Peace Prayer, which you obviously recognize echoes of the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. And now we're going to be talking to Mike Potier from the Catholic Parliamentary Liaison Office in Cape Town. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Francis. How are you this morning? I'm fine, thank you very much. An, an interesting morning. It is an interesting morning. So as we, as we sit and look at the votes coming through, um, yeah, we, we're, we're sort of, well, I'm, I'm looking at the, the IEC results dashboard in front of me, and I'm really struck by some of the shifts that seem to be going on in the big metros, and I wonder what thoughts you have about that. Well, I think the first thought, obviously, is that uh, it's too early to tell with any kind of certainty in, in most parts of the country, including the metros. The indications are, obviously, that the DA is, has a very good chance of winning Nelson Mandela Bay, and maybe some chance in, in Chwane. Mm -hmm. But uh, we know that, um, as, as Gwede Mantashi put it on the radio this morning, the more organized parts of the cities um, report first, and then the more outlying districts of the metros, including many of the townships, report later. Mm -hmm. So the figures that we're looking at at the moment that give the DA almost a 20 percentage point lead in Nelson Mandela Bay, for example, could change quite a lot through the course of the morning. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that makes sense. If we're, if we're looking at primarily a suburban vote coming in, that's not mm. really surprising that it's leaning heavily towards the DA. That is, that's almost what, I mean, that's what all the polls have been predicting anyway. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I think that if the DA has got a 20 percentage point lead at this stage in, in Nelson Mandela Bay, it's pretty much likely to hold on to an, an absolute lead by the end of the process. In other words, it's not going to get overtaken. Really? But but whether that means um, it'll have more than 50% of the vote is a different question. And, okay. and it seems more likely that it's going to end up somewhere in the 40s. It may also crack 40, 42%, something like that. In China, not enough to you know, go ahead and take over the running of those municipalities. They'll have to find a coalition partner. Right. And, and do you think they will, I mean, I know they've been doing some things with the EFF in the last year or so. Do you think they'll lean towards working with the EFF? Or do you, I mean, this whole thing of the EFF being the kingmaker party in some of those um, municipalities, do you think that's, that's likely to happen? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's on the cards, definitely. Neither of the big parties, the ANC or the DA, have a huge amount of choice when it comes to finding coalition parties. The EFF comes in at number three in most areas of the country, most of the contested metropolitan cities, but with a surprisingly low percentage point at the moment. It's, they're hovering around, it depends which city you're looking at, but between 2.5% up to uh, about 6.5% in some of the others. So it's not as if the EFF you know, has a handy 15% that it can offer to one of the, one of the two bigger parties. And that could mean that people have to go and look at the UDM and the ACDP and all sorts of very small parties that have got 1% or half a percent or one and a quarter percent and try to cobble together quite a large coalition that might you know, end up consisting of four or five different parties. And that could get very complicated. Mm -hmm. and, 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 uh, and one wonders when that happens, if some of those smaller parties then get um, a louder voice, if you like, in policy making because they're needed to, yeah. to, to be pulled in. Well, they will demand a voice and they will demand positions, important positions on the uh, executives of these, of these cities. Mm -hmm. um, I would imagine that you know, no party is going to go into a coalition in uh, Nelson Mandela or in China without getting the kind of position that gives it a bit of profile. In other words, you know, an important um, male committee position. Uh, and that, that kind of horse trading is going to be difficult. And there's also the possibility, of course, that smaller parties... Um, can threaten to walk out of a coalition after a short while or to, you know, give their seat, their, their vote, as it were, to the other big party that's hovering in the distance. So coalitions themselves can change uh, as the years go by, and that has happened in some of our smaller local municipalities over the years. And if that happens, then we have a, a high degree of instability. You don't have one set uh, government running a municipality, it, it changes every six months or every year, and that's generally not a very good thing. Right. And we haven't really seen, I mean, in a way, we've had quite a stable 
In most of the country has been run by the ANC for the last 20 years. East, the, the, the Western Cape obviously moved to the DA, and, and, and that looks like that's, that's solidified, as far as I can tell, when looking at the early, the early results. Yeah. That they're looking, I've heard that they're looking for a two-thirds majority in the Western Cape. Do you think that's likely to actually um, happen? It seems possible. It seems very possible in Cape Town metropolitan in the city. I don't think it's going to happen across the province because there are still some ANC strongholds in, the, in some of the rural local municipalities. But it's possible that the DA could get in the mid-60%, maybe even 70% in, in Cape Town City. Wow. And, um, you know, whether they were looking for that uh, actively, I'm not sure. I, my sense has been that the DA's campaigning in Cape Town has been fairly low-key because they've, they've had it in the bag, they, just as the ANC has Etiquini in the bag and doesn't really need to worry. The same applies to the DA in Cape Town. So they're comfortable here. The question will be whether the DA can make further inroads in the rural areas of the Western Cape province. Yeah. And it does mm. look like they might take over a couple of the big municipalities on the west coast from the, from the ANC. It also looks so that, that they might be losing control of one or two of the municipalities in the Garden Route area, which at the moment are, are trending towards the ANC. But in the, the early days, all of those things could change. Yeah. I mean, it definitely looks like um, Buffalo City may well be more contested than other parts of um, of the Eastern Cape. I was kind of struck. I mean, I, I've been thinking quite a lot about Catholic social teaching and about the church's role in the elections, and I was really struck by a relatively, it seems like a relatively poor turnout in terms of mm. voters coming to vote. I mean, we're looking at, looks like less than 60% of the voters voted. Now, that seems to me to just be an appalling um, statistic for a country, for a young democracy like ours, where people have really, really fought, you know, yeah. to have the right to vote for for 40% of the population to decide it's too cold, it's too much effort, on a day that's a public holiday. It's not as though you have to take leave from work to vote. It's yeah. been made really easy to vote. Um, voting stations are just down the road. Almost everyone I know walked to their voting station. You don't need transport. It's, it's, it's as simple as possible. I'm really distressed by, by the, the degree to which we seem to have be having a growing sense of apathy amongst people. Now, I wonder what your thoughts are about why that is and, and, and what we as the church might do to counteract that. It is a, it's a strange phenomenon, and what I have never quite understood is why it should be that um, people go and register to vote, which takes a certain amount of effort, um, and then don't pitch up on the day. That's, that, they're quoting a... a percentage are 58.5 as the, as the turnout, and that's 58.5% of registered voters. Right, okay. So, and, and we know that only about three quarters of our population who are entitled by age and citizenship to vote have actually registered, so the, the, you know, it, it makes it even worse that way. I think there's a few factors. One, uh, even though it was a public holiday, all the shops were open, a lot of the services were open, etc., and there were stories coming out yesterday of People in retail, people in you know running a, a, the um, petrol pump attendants and people like that, are being expected to work their normal shifts and not being able to vote. So, mm -hmm. you know, we have this phenomenon in South Africa where public holiday doesn't really mean that anything gets closed. We have, we have trading on every public holiday and, 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 and Sundays and so on. So that would be a factor. Um, then, yes, the weather probably played a part, and that was predicted a while back when there was speculation as to when the president would decide to have this election, because remember, it could have taken place as early as the middle of May. Yeah. And everybody said, well, the fallout from Mkandla, he'll want to have it as late as possible within this allowable period, but the later he has it into July or August, the colder it's going to be, the rainier in some parts of the country it'll be. And yes, in the Western Cape yesterday we did um, wake up to a bit of rain, and, and I think in interior parts of the Western Cape province it was even worse. A lot of snow in some of the high-lying areas of the Eastern Cape and so on. So no doubt that did keep, keep some people away. Then you have the phenomenon uh, up in the far north, in, in the Vuani region, for example, where people boycotted, in effect, they boycotted the votes because of dissatisfaction. And I think that probably has 
has um, accounted for quite a large number of the missing voters, people who are motivated enough to register, um, but when this election rolls around, they're expressing their frustration by just staying away. Mm-hmm. And then finally is the question of disillusion and apathy, uh, supposedly largely among the youth. Time will tell if that is an accurate picture. What can the church do about it? Well, you know, the bishops release pastoral letters in, in advance of, of each election in which they encourage people very strongly to go and vote. I don't know how many of those letters are read out in how many parishes and, and how many people take them seriously. Uh, other church structures, justice and peace and things like that, motivate people to vote. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a personal decision, and there's only so much that you can do um, to, to force or to you know, encourage people to take uh, advantage of these structures. If they don't want to, you can't make them. Yeah. I presume that's, that's right, that, that in a way one of the gifts of a democracy is the right not to engage, and people have exercised that right for whatever reason. Yes. I, I, my, my concern, though, is that it, it constitutes a sort of misunderstanding. We still have too many people in our electorate who think that casting a vote is a reward for what a political party has achieved, rather than a kind of instruction to a political party to go and do something in the future. Mm -hmm. So, in a nutshell, people vote for what happened before instead of voting for the future. Um, And that's why we we, will find people still sticking very much to their old loyalties. Um, In this country, we have people voting for the liberation movement, even though liberation occurred you know, 22 years ago, if you like. Yeah. Um, one would want to see people saying, okay, what's, what's in the past is in the past, and the good and the bad. Um, which party really holds out the best chance of improving my life for mm. the next five years? Yeah. That, that should be how people weigh up their vote. And, I mean, I think there's a, a real sense in which we haven't seen that, that kind of campaigning from parties either. They, most parties talk about what they have achieved and aren't talking about, for instance, things going forwards. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was really struck in the um, – it, it always strikes me that, that one of the areas I, I consistently want there to be a, a kind of uh, – a, auction, if you like, on would be something like the child grant, which every year is worth slightly less than it was the year before because it doesn't keep track of inflation. Yeah. And yet no party seems to want to pick that up as something where they'll promise more if they're elected. It, it's like it's just a non-issue. The, the way it's brought up yeah. is we gave you the child grant, yeah. not what will it be in the next five years. Yes. Uh, the one party that did, in fact, make promises in, in regard to social grants, of course, was the ESF, EFF, yeah. um, promising that if they win these elections, they will increase all the social grants. But again, that's a, an, you know, a complete uh, mis- misapprehension of what it's all about, or, because it's not up to municipal governments to, to pay social grants and to increase or to decrease yeah, no, or to do anything with them. That's our next but, election. Sorry, that's it's a topic for our next election. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's a national. And again, that may have led, led to some of the lack of enthusiasm for these elections. I think it's possible that some people look at, at local government elections and say, "Well, you know, what's the big deal? I'm not voting Zuma in or out of office. I'm not voting uh, for you know massive policy changes here or there." It's uh, wrongly, but I think in the perception of some people, this, this is relatively less important than a big general election. And yet this is actually electing the people who are going to make sure that your water arrives, your electricity arrives, your roads are tarred. So there's that sense of these local elections actually in in many ways are are much more intimate in -hmm. that they deal with things that that most of the the electorate, whoever we are, the citizens, have to deal with on a daily basis. Well, exactly, yeah. And you can argue that... uh, in the short term, the medium term, uh, our government's foreign policy and its defense policy and things like that don't have a, a noticeable mm. daily effect on us. No. Whereas the question of whether or not our rubbish is collected and whether or not water comes out of our taps very much has a daily effect yeah. on us. Yeah. So, yeah, and clearly they, they, they are important elections, they're vital elections, but um, it seems that, that you know, 40% odd of our registered population um, don't see it as, as being as meaningful as they should. All right. 
Well, thank you for all of that. Um, I'm aware that you have to get to uh, a court case soon. I seem to remember you saying that, and we are coming to the end of our time with you. But thank you for sharing your thoughts with us this morning. That's a pleasure, and let's uh, uh, hope everyone will keep track of what's happening, and, and hopefully by this afternoon we will have some pretty good ideas of, of, of how things will stand. Excellent. Right, that was Mike Poitier from the Catholic Parliamentary Liaison Office, and he was talking to me, Francis Correa, on the Jesuit Institute Hour here at Radio Veritas. We're going to move now to an ad break. Radio Veritas. Your Catholic Connection. When I grow up, I want to be a doctor because I want to help people. I'd like to be a firefighter. I'd like to rescue people and be a good example how to support a community. What a child becomes is dependent on how they are raised. Abuse, neglect and abandonment rob a child of their childhood. Joburg Child Welfare is dedicated to providing child protection services to children in the greater Johannesburg area. They also have child care centers to lend a helping hand. Call 011-298-8500 or email fundraising at jhbchildwelfare.org.za. Joburg Child Welfare, caring for children. Are you ready to unleash your potential? Each of us is born with great potential, yet few achieve it. At Imsimbi, we nurture each individual's self-awareness so that you discover your true soul purpose. Imsimbi Training is an accredited training provider offering values-based courses like leadership, emotional intelligence, project and financial management. Let the spirit transform your workplace. Call 011-678-2443 or visit www.insimbi.co.za to see our 50 accredited courses. Prayer is powerful beyond limits. When we turn to the Immaculata who is Queen, even of God's heart, said St. Maximilian Kolbe. Radio Veritas, together with the multi-talented musical group, The Gifted Folks, bring you a concert in celebrating the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Come and join us as we praise in song on the 20th of August at the Cathedral of Christ the King in Berea, Johannesburg at 2 p.m. The cost is 100 rand for adults and 50 rand for children under the age of 16. For more information, contact Mahadi Butelezi on 011-663-4700 or 083-992-0387. Maritzi wa Radio Veritas, yuna kisitulu wana sabatla sebo matobo wana masyawana atou. Hato wakamukwena. Arkopane labubedi mungwe le mungwe kusimulaka ura yabusupa kufitelaka ura yaburwabedi maitibu wa ligata zilala matato kusimulaka ura yabubedi motsekharu kufitelaka ura yabune. Arkopane kuhu. So you are listening to the Jesuit Institute Hour on Radio Veritas. My name is Francis Correa. For the next few minutes, I want to talk a little bit about one of the key Ignatian concepts that inspire Ignatian spirituality. So for those of you who don't remember what Ignatian spirituality is, that is the spirituality of St. Ignatius of Loyola, who founded the Jesuits. And uh, you're listening to the Jesuit Institute Hour. So there's something about this way of proceeding, this Jesuit way of engaging with the world, of proceeding with the world, that can be quite revolutionary, quite on the edge I can remember back in the old South Africa, um, there was lots of criticism of religious parties, I mean, of religious organizations speaking about politics or engaging with politics or thinking about politics. And that's a, an old um, critique that the church has often had to uh, engage with. And it's very interesting when one looks at it because 
there's a clear sense that the church the church teaches two things. In Vatican II, the church teaches that it's not a great idea to have theocracies, that is, states that are run by religious institutions, even though in our Catholic history that's exactly what we had uh, in the Middle Ages, but that, that there's a, it's important to have a separation between church and state, and yet once you have that separation in, in place, it's also very important for people who are in the church to feel free to really criticize the state, to criticize how the world is run, using the Gospels as their way of critiquing. So there's, there's the space for engagement, for dialogue, for reflection, discernment, for thinking things through. And when we say the church, we need to remember who the church are. In, in one sense, when the church is talking about this, they're often thinking, you know, you might have a letter from a bishop's conference. In South Africa, we've had many letters from the bishops about various things to do with social justice that get out, read out in our churches, that are promulgated to our people, the justice and peace groups may be working with. And that's one way of the church speaking. But another way is to remember that we ourselves, every single one of us, makes up the church, that at our baptisms, at confirmation, we are confirmed as priest, prophet, and king, that we have a prophetic role in the world, that we have a leadership role in the world, that we have a ministerial role, all of us, irrespective of who we are, if we're a mom, if we're a grandmother, if we're um, a, a shop worker, our innate dignity and our innate sense of who Christ is and what Christ wants in the world is such that we should be thinking about and engaging with what's going on in the society around us. And we don't just engage as Christians for our own selfish needs, but that we need to be thinking about, well, what do we need as a society? How do we protect the poor, the vulnerable, the needy in our society? And why do we want to protect those people? Well, I'm going to read you a passage of Scripture. You'll recognize it. It's from Matthew's Gospel. Jesus says, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you look after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you truly, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. What is Jesus challenging us to? What is Jesus saying to us in, in this passage of Scripture? He's really asking us to think about the vulnerable, the marginalized in our society. He's asking us to think about people who don't belong, the stranger who needs to be welcomed. You know, just at the moment we see all over the world the, the rise of refugees, the rise of people who are fleeing either unjust regimes in their own country or fleeing war or just fleeing economic hardship or fleeing the fact that there's a serious drought or some other natural disaster. There's a real message of, of welcome. There's a real message about people having their basic needs met, about the hungry being fed, the poor being clothed, about people's basic needs being met. When we think about our role in society as people, we have to engage with our responsibility as Christians to care for those who are less advantaged than us. And, you know, we can just look around our families and we see people who are in need of care. We see the elderly in our families. We see the children who need to be looked after. We see the unmarried who have children. We see all sorts of people who may need a little bit more care than we, than we ourselves need. And, and there's that invitation to be engaged with those people. But there's also the invoca invitation to be engaged with all the people that we meet as we go through our day whether we're living in a rural area or in a city, the chances are we're meeting people all the time, seeing people all the time who are Christ to us, who are in need, and who Christ asks us out of love for him to engage with. 
In Evangelii Gaudium, Pope Francis puts it very well. He says that being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but rather it is the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. Thanks solely to this encounter with God's love in Jesus, which blossoms into an enriching friendship, we are liberated from our narrowness and self-absorption. We become fully human when we become more than human, when we let God bring us beyond ourselves in order to attain the fullest truth of our being. Here we find the source and inspiration at all, of all our efforts at evangelization. For if we have received the love which restores meaning to our lives, how can we fail to share that love with others? This is a really complex idea that Pope Francis is exploring in Evangelii Gaudium. And it's, it's fundamental in a way to Ignatian spirituality. It's based on two movements. The first is that I open myself to a personal encounter with Jesus, that I allow myself to really be touched by the love of God. And then it follows that naturally I will want to love those that Jesus loves, that I will be naturally moved to wanting to take seriously Jesus' call to care for my brothers and sisters in the world, that I will love others because Christ loves them, that I will see in others the face of Jesus. Uh, the Jesuit poet Hopkins writes about it very beautifully in his, his one poem. He says that I look at others, I see Christ play in 10,000 places, lovely in looks and lovely in features to the Father through the features of men's faces. This idea that Jesus is in the eyes, in the faces of the people I meet. So the next time that someone stops you at the side of the road and asks for money, I want you to just think for a moment, this is Christ. Or the next time that you have to go and visit some elderly member of your family. Perhaps like I think about for 10 years I went to visit my grandmother and she couldn't recognize me. She, she had Alzheimer's. She didn't know who she was. She didn't know who I was. But a real sense of if I went in there and thought I am seeing Christ, the wounded Christ in her, then I was much better able to engage with her. Or when next, you know, you're sitting at some family party and somebody needs to look after all the toddlers, that sense of even in the toddlers I see Christ in these children who need to be watched. I see Christ in the other. That, I think, is, is part of the call to be living from the more, the margus, that we are invited to open our hearts, to live from a broader horizon, to live with more intensity in the world. It's in this context that we need to be thinking both about the elections that have just happened and our awareness that we're actually... These elections are just part of a process that elections come round seasonally. The next set of elections are coming up. And we need to be thinking about, well, what do we want for the country? It's not just about what has happened. I loved what my Potia was talking about earlier. It's not just about the past, but it's also about the future. What are we looking for? You know, as a voter and as a taxpayer, I am appalled at things like the low rate of the child grant. I cannot imagine how anyone survives on less than 400 rand a month. We know from research that's been done by groups like PAXA that the child grant should be sitting at about five to 600 rand a month. It's half of that. We should be demanding from our parties that they change, that they raise the, the level of the child grant to an actual living amount. I don't even know how someone survives on 600 rand a month, but but 312, I think it is at the moment, is too little. It's not enough to feed a child. If we don't have children who fed, then we don't have children who can concentrate at schools, then we perpetrate a whole range of other problems because those children will not do well at school, they will not learn to read and write, they will not become numerate, they will not be able to engage effectively in society. And we see that problem running through our education system. We see it running through our unemployed youth. We see all sorts of problems, and we can trace a lot of them back to basic poverty. So I think we need to be thinking about these things a little bit more clearly. We need to be asking, what would Christ want me to do? What does Christ ask of me? How do I engage with this stuff?
as I said earlier, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. I think the church is concerned by the poor turnout of voters. I went to go, go and look up. In the 94 election, 86% of the country voted. That's why we sat in queues for so long. We were just talking in studio before we began. Remember my, my, my um, producer here stood in line for a mere 10 minutes. I was in a queue for about 20 minutes. There were places where only 30 people voted. This is appalling, guys. This is appalling. This is our moment to ask our leadership that democracy is all about us taking ownership. If we don't take ownership on the day that we are offered it on election day, then we never take ownership. We are not being civilly active. This is a real crisis. I think it's a crisis of faith. I think if you did not vote in this election, you need to go to confession and think about, think about why. Why was whatever else I was doing more important than the choice to actively engage in choosing a government, in choosing local government, in choosing to be involved? And just the, the statement that I don't like the ANC or the DA, which many people have said to me, or the EFF, I was struck by how many parties there were to vote for. Guys, there's more than one choice, and we could see smaller parties playing a much bigger role. If 40% of us had voted for smaller parties, that would change what the voting looked like now. We could change that. It's really important. So while you're thinking about those things, I'd like to invite you. I'm going to play another piece of music. Again, it's a piece of music that hopefully will just inspire you to think a little bit about how you engage in the world, about what God is asking of us. So Bernadette Farrell's All That Is Hidden.
the seven corporal works of mercy to feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, welcome the stranger, heal the sick, visit the imprisoned, bury the dead. So there we were listening to um, the seven corporal works of mercy. Again, there's that sense of things that we are called to do as Christians, things we are called to engage with as Christians, to be be involved with. One of the things that often kind of strikes me, um, and I, I wonder if it strikes you, is that sometimes one can feel a little overwhelmed when one thinks about the problems in the world. You know, what can I do about, for instance, ISIS? Or what can I do about poverty? What can I do about the AIDS pandemic? How do I engage with these? It can seem overwhelming. And I think there's something that's very important about remembering that that we each have, as it were, a particular role to play in bringing about the kingdom of God. That God doesn't ask us to do that which is impossible. And that Christ has already redeemed the world. There's a sense of it is possible to just do that piece of good that is in our own arena, in our own place, and that that is very, very important, even if it feels like it's not very much. Um, one One of the quotes I love, and I'm going to read it to you, is by Dorothy Day. And I'm just going to read you what she said. So for those of you who don't know who Dorothy Day was, she was um, she lived in the early part of the 20th century. She was a committed Christian. She was also a committed Marxist. She started a paper called The Catholic Worker, which um, is still around. And she really worked for, for basic rights for people, particularly in the United States. This is what Dorothy Day said. What we would like to do is to change the world to make it a little simpler for people to feed, clothe, and shelter themselves as God intended them to do. And by, by, and by fighting for better conditions, by crying out unceasingly for the rights of the workers, of the poor, of the destitute, the rights of the worthy and the unworthy poor, in other words, we can, to a certain extent, change the wor- world. We can work for the oasis, the little cell of joy and peace in a harried world. And then this is the bit I really love that she says. She says, we can throw our pebble in the pond and be confident that its ever-widening circle will reach round the world. We repeat, there is nothing we can do but love. And dear God, please enlarge our hearts to love each other, to love our neighbor, to love our enemy as our friend. I love that sense of we're called to do little things. We're called to throw our own pebble in the pond. And if we each throw our own pebble, then things will shift, things will move. That we trust that we are working to bring about the kingdom of God, but we are not alone. We work with God, with the Holy Spirit. In a similar way, Bishop Ken Utner of Seginwa, I often get that wrong, and he said this, while talking about Archbishop Romero, and the quote is often um, associated with the Romero, he said, it helps now and then to step back and take the long view. The kingdom of God is not only beyond our efforts, it is even beyond our vision. If we think about South Africa at the moment, doesn't that make sense? What would the kingdom of God made manifest in South Africa look like? We know it's beyond our efforts, our individual efforts, for some of us, it's even beyond our vision. We can just get glimpses of it, what might be like. It goes on. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete. Which is a way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. We plant seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something, and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, 
an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. I find these words very consoling, that sense of being part of a movement of gods that is moving towards the kingdom, that is inspired by the Spirit, but that is not entirely up to me. It's only partially up to me. It's only up to me to do my bit, to deal with the people I encounter, to preach Christ both in what I say, but also very much, very important for Catholics, to, to do that which is Christ, to love others as if they are Christ, because in reality they are. Christ comes to us in the faces, the features of other people. Archbishop Tutu puts it as well, very simply, very classic Archbishop Tutu, do your little bit of good where you are. It is those little bits of good put together that overwhelm the world. I think as we watch the election results coming in, some of us may be feeling inspired, some of us may be feeling depressed, some of us may be feeling apathetic. I really want to invite you to remember that it's not just at times of election that we exercise our citizenship, but it is every day that we build the country we live in. The responsibility for who we are as South Africans are does not lie with our government only. It lies with us that we have a long history of actually very active civil society organizations. We've looked in this last year alone, we can see how organizations like the Cathedra Foundation or the Helen Sussman Foundation have really successfully challenged the government, they have challenged things that have happened, they have worked on our behalf, and these are small organizations run by highly dedicated people. We need to think ourselves about what is the pebble I throw into the pond in my own context, in my local area. How do I try to build the kingdom of God? You know, and it may be as simple as what I do with children that I teach. I was, I was very, very struck recently. I, I watched a dramatization by a group of great twos of the story of the Good Samaritan. And it was it was very clever. It was beautifully done. It picked up a lot of the themes of modern day South Africa. It was the children were pretending to be somebody knocked down by the side of the road and the taxi drove past and the bike drove past and a car stopped and a run down car stopped to help them and it was it was you know, it was it was very contextualized. And as I watched this I was thinking about that teacher teacher who put that performance together for those kids, that teacher is helping to build good citizens. That teacher, in what she's doing, doing it with excellence in her own way, in her small classroom of grade twos, is changing the world. She's changing the world by forming the hearts and minds of the kids she's working with. And she is, in that way, giving glory to God. And I think that's what we need to remember, that it's in our own context in the places we find ourselves. That's where we are asked to shape the world, to do that which is necessary to change our own little corner so as to build God's kingdom. And so on that note, I would invite you in this coming week to pray for the grace to see what is the pebble God asks me to throw in the pond? What is the one thing that I can do this week that would help to build the kingdom of God here in South Africa. This prayer, I pray for you, for your friends and your family, your communities, and we pray together that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you and those whom you love, and all South Africans and all who live in this country. Amen. <laughs> 